0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple
2: fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored
0: Snapple near you.
3: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD Will the Thrill and TJ2.
2: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is my big brother, TJ2, the deuce. It's, are you opening up a package of like canned peaches? Millions of peaches. Uh,
0: peaches. Uh, really-
4: no, I have a bottle today, so the, the sound effects are always going to be a bit lacking.
2: Got it. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, what, what are you drinking?
4: I'm having a Highland Clawhammer Oktoberfest. Tis the season. <sighs> yes, we're uh, well, rolling that yep,
2: out. Yep, it's it's fine. It's we're just a couple weeks from actual Halloween and stuff, so yeah, they, they started in August. They started in late hey,
4: August. My, you, you like you like my German.
2: Yeah.
4: No. Strudel.
2: Okay. All right. And our storyteller today, Mr. Will the Autobahn!
0: Kindergarten
2: to that I say uh, something in German. I don't I'm know. <laughs> sorry to our German listeners. Yeah, now both of them are off. Yeah, so uh,
4: greetings. <laughs> we've alienated both of them.
2: Sorry, <laughs> honey. Do you want to give yes? your
0: greeting? That's okay. I, I will let it go. Okay. <laughs> Everyone right. knows who I am and what I'm here to do.
2: Okay. Well, we are on part four of Lane daily. So I actually don't, I don't think that we have any catching up to do. We have no business to get to. Um, I think, you know, um, I guess it's it's my birthday soon. When this comes out, it'll be a week from my, 10 days from my birthday. Wait, 10, 11 days from my birthday.
0: And all the listeners know how we're celebrating your birthday, correct?
2: I don't know if they do or not. Why don't you tell
0: them? Well we have ld has mentioned we've missed out on some concerts due to musicians passing and we just assumed they'd always be there it's like phantom of the opera now closing on broadway
2: yeah always be there i know like and and it's not just that it's dear evan hansen it's come from away it's phantom of the opera it's um oh my gosh uh music man those are all closing now and that's like
0: four big shows And I do think, you know, we're in for kind of a Broadway dark age now. That's just a theory for another time. But uh, long story short, we found out that uh, Sir Elton John will be doing his final tour, or so he's threatened that it will be. And uh, we saw it and we got tickets. So I got tickets, actually, for LD's birthday. So it's not on her birthday, but uh, a couple days after.
2: It's close yeah. enough. It's still a Libra concert, so we're good. It's a Libra concert, yeah. <laughs> um, but
0: going back to uh, business and whatnot, it is. I believe today or yesterday was the anniversary, unfortunately, of the passing of Mark Bolin of T Rex.
2: Yes, and uh, we actually spoke about Mark Bolin in our interview with Leslie Ann Jones, and so we will be probably doing an episode on him because she's uh, she, you know, so kindly. Uh, recommended a book that she wrote and I actually got it. So that will be coming up soon. And,
4: and we're only a few days removed as we record this from the anniversary of the death of Johnny Cash, who we will have a series on. Let's not kid ourselves and say this calendar year,
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> but we were talking during this quote
4: this quote season. of e- <laughs> e-
0: Earlier that. today, we were jesting, and not entirely that the 2022 draft is actually becoming the 2023 draft because lane's going to be about seven parts we're going to have a slap nuts then we have our holiday stuff uh, we still
2: have yeah. we have to finish my we have to finish me my 2020 draft pick which was uh <laughs> steven sondheim so we just pushed to right. the year <laughs> so uh so yeah so that's that's kind of the updates on our life and let's just jump right into our sponsor
0: will would you like to take it away I would, because this is a sponsor that I know and I have experience with, and that sponsor is BetterHelp, because I know how it was for me. I needed a little help. I feel like we all do at some point or another in our lives. We spend a lot of time working on the things that we think are good for us, and they are diet, exercise, healthy work-life balance, but really, when was the last time you focused on your mental health? I didn't know the answer when I asked that question. And for me, it became far too late. Like many people, I was doing a lot of things to pull my life together and it just wasn't working. I thought something was wrong and I needed somebody to talk to. And I felt really isolated and out of place. Plus we were in the mid- middle of a global pandemic. So what I found out was having that person to talk to was really important. And that's where BetterHelp really changed the game for me. BetterHelp allows you to get the specific help you need for whatever is eating away at you. They can ask you a series of specific questions to find the right therapist you can talk to. That's the best part. So this is custom-made therapy, and it all happens from the comfort of your home. That's right, folks. You can get connected with a licensed therapist from your house in under 48 hours. No more driving to a doctor's office, paying the park, sitting in a waiting room, reading magazines from eight years ago. It's all taken off your plate. You can do it from home. And right now, we have a special special promo for our listeners. That's why we have the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast special, where you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com. All you need to do when you register is enter our code, which is Heaven. So go to betterhelp.com, enter our code ROCKHEAVEN, and you too can start talking to a licensed therapist and getting you the help you need with your mental health. BetterHelp was a game-changer for me, for many others, and it can be a game-changer for you. Thanks for sponsoring this podcast, Better Help, Better Life. All right, thank you so much, BetterHelp,
2: for sponsoring the show. And so, uh, Mr. Will the Thrill, who are we still covering now?
0: Well, we are still covering the late, great Lane Staley, and I'm happy to say, folks, we have made it to the Facelift album. Several folks had... Um, mentioned that a lot of this series was kind of all wretch and no vomit, as they say. I like to do the buildup and introduce the characters. And one of the most recently introduced characters was in fact, Susan Silver, who LD, you had talked about in your Chris Cornell series, correct? I do believe so. And that's sort of where we left off. What we had was uh, we had Allison James being a bit displaced. We had the debacle at the music bank. They didn't have a place to record and their manager found himself back in the pokey for testing positive on a drug test. So That's where Susan Silver allegedly came into the picture. And just just for a laugh, folks, I had originally written this script, and I wrote that Susan Silver had been a manager in Seattle since 1883. I believe that to be a mistype. It should be 1983 uh, in Seattle. She actually started with the U-Men. He's very
4: experienced.
0: Yes, (laughs) clearly. Uh, She started with the U-Men, managing them. Extremely. She she brings a great deal of... She brings a wealth of
4: experience to the table.
0: Yes, she was managing uh, piano players in saloons, apparently, at that point.
4: Stephen Stinkin (laughs) Foster.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, Susan Silver is kind of a polarizing figure. Uh, She's known best for her professional and romantic connections mm -hmm, with Chris Cornell. Again, check out LD's series on that. Great series on Chris uh, when we unfortunately lost him. Now, an interesting fact about Susan is that as if by fate one of her day jobs while managing these bands that were sort of coming up was working at a Seattle clothing store, and their primary product was Doc Martens. So it sort of foreshadowed that grunge era fashion that we all came to know and love. And by the early 90s, Susan Silver was overseeing three bands. Maybe you've heard of them, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains.
2: Ma'am, um, you want to keep going with that list? I, I don't know any of these people. Ah
0: yeah, sorry. Bunch of bunch of no names, I tell you. So the big question is: was Susan actually managing Allison Chains at this point? Again, we're looking at the late 80s, 88, 89. It really depends on who you ask. And a lot of it comes back to accounts from Hauser, who was Allison Chain's manager, who wound up back in jail due to a failed drug test. Now, one account says that he had actually passed a copy of the Treehouse Tapes demo that they had recorded, and Susan got a hold of it, and she described Alice in Chains as quote, catchy and wonderful. I don't know if I'd describe them as that. They are great, but catchy and wonderful, I'm not so sure. Now, Hauser says that Kelly Curtis and Ken Deans, again, the pair that sort of was also attached to Alice in Chains at this time, actually visited him in jail agreed to watch the band while he was incarcerated, which by the way, Hauser insists to this day that he did not fail the drug test. So let that go on record. He says he didn't fail it. There you go. Um, And then Susan kind of pulled her strings from a PR standpoint. So again, accounts differ on this one. What's crazy though, is by this point, Alice and Chains was really still an up and coming band. And by 1989, they did not have a record deal yet. So according to Lane, he said, we got a lot of big shows before we signed arena shows. And a lot of them were through a friend of our managers. And this is sort of backing up the claim that Susan was involved, whether through management or promotions, either way. In fact, some of the opening bands, again, that uh, I'm sorry, some of the bands that Allison Chains opened for at this time were the Bullet Boys, Great White, and Tesla. I have seen one of those three
2: in concert. Is it the Bullet Boys? no is it great white yes it is (laughs) you saw great white i saw great white i ended up hanging out with the band did they perform (laughs)
4: the hit did they perform the medley of their mini hit yes they did
2: (laughs) it was amazing it it was great i saw them at the house of blues and like i want to say it was no i'm lying it was not great white it was for no foreigner was it foreign (sighs) no firehouse firehouse i saw Firehouse lies. Never it's all mind. lies. Never mind. I'll go back into my hole. <laughs>
0: firehouse for the full
2: hour. Again, the crap I was okay. thinking, baby,
0: don't treat me bad. That's firehouse. Say Levy. Pulse Magazine released an article saying that the latest conquest for the Alan Silver team is a band called Alice in Chains. Emerging from the studios with one of the most memorable demos in history, this little rat pack should have labels eating out of their hands. Well, one of those labels finally came, Colin. One of the members of the A&R Department for CBS Records, which had the subsidiary of Columbia, took interest in the band. It took eight months, but after eight months, Alice and Chains signed a deal. Now we're going to break convention here because we all know how first signings usually go, right? Bend over and, and take it, basically. Yeah, <laughs> you always get screwed on the back end. Not this time. Hey, oh, hey, oh, da, 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 da. But I'm happy to say, I think we found an exception. Allison Chains did not get screwed in their first signing. According to Jerry Cantrell and Sean Kinney, they had the best advisors around them, the best attorneys and they actually retained publishing rights in their first contract. It's pretty amazing. A rarity. Yes. And even Deans would go on to say it was a miracle that Allison Chains got it all. And he says something very ominous here. He says, they are possibly the last band to get signed and keep all their publishing rights, which is pretty scary. And this is, uh, the signing actually took place on September 11th, 1989. That's when Allison Chains signed. Nice. So. Yep. It was off to Los Angeles to meet the production team. It was headed up by a producer named Dave Jordan, who I think, TJ, this may resonate more with you than with LD. He actually produced Nothing Shocking by Jane's Addiction.
4: Oh, very nice. Good album, yep.
0: yeah. Yeah, that's very lost on me. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, and the other producer of note was Nick Turzo, and then again, this other no-name, Rick Rubin? Eh? No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's I been, heard maybe, of him.
2: maybe he'll make something of himself later.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I mean,
4: I mentioned him... Uh in about three episodes in a a series last year, but I've never heard of him.
0: Yeah, he's almost like a running gag at this point. Now, according to Dave Jordan, the interesting thing was the demo got into CBS's hands and Jordan says that everybody passed. He was the only one who said, yes, we'll go forward and produce this album. And the reason why he said that everyone was looking for the next Guns N' Roses and Dio, Ronnie James Dio. Um, And he said that Lane's voice did not line
2: up. Who is actually eligible for this podcast isn't he yes yes he is sadly
4: yes he has he has been he left he passed quite a while back actually
0: yeah and all all of gnr is still with us well no steve out passed but um anyway the point is, is that's what they were looking for and alice and chains wasn't that they had shades of that and lane's voice was really the difference he said that the difference that he liked about the alice and chains demo was that lane didn't have that kind of high screechy Axel Rose sound, he was kind of bluesier, earthier, and he said that's what attracted him to it. And everything seemed like it was going to go great. They were going to record, and then they go to a party, and drummer Sean Kinney gets in a fight and breaks his hand. So what happens? The plan was to go back to Seattle, to London Bridge Studio. Now, the music bank, as we know, is defunct at this point, or well on its way to being defunct. And they were going to record at London Bridge and bring in the drummer, Greg Gilmore, who was with Mother Love Bone. So Gilmore goes to sit in, and for three days, they just can't get it. Gilmore's not a bad drummer, by the way, but they just can't do it. And the whole time, Sean Kinney is standing there, and for three days, Jordan was saying they couldn't get the sound. They couldn't get the sound. And I'm going to back up a little bit and give a couple warnings here. Um, Warning for language, warning for substance abuse, and warning for discussion about addiction and addictive substances so this is timely because according to the legend while Kenny was sitting in the booth he got so frustrated and said fuck this ripped the sling off of his arm and said I'm gonna do this broken arm or not and basically kicked out Greg Gilmore and sat down at the drums with a broken hand that's the legend why don't we dive into the most well-known song on the facelift album it doesn't need much intro so we'll just dive into. Man in the Box. That song is so satisfying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And and just, I know we say it a lot, but give it up to Jerry Cantrell, man. What a, what a guitar player. Oh my God. That's phenomenal.
4: God, what a banger of a song. Oh man. Yeah. I, love oh, actually, I love that so much. It's
2: actually a song I know. Yes.
4: I'll never I forget the first time I heard it, driving around in my 1978 Chevrolet Impala.
2: <laughs> yep. And you know, what's funny is that that actually happened in the year 2012, which is
0: weird no it was 91 but still it just came on the radio
4: <laughs> yes on uh ld will remember this there used to be a great hard rock metal alternative station 957, out of charlotte yes north carolina and uh i even remember, remember the DJ that played it was mary london oh wow and i i heard that and just went like oh my god what is that
0: <laughs> Ooh. it's such a banger oh man what now, a fantastic I do really cont- song we're gonna continue discussion, but I'm gonna do something we rarely do. So, LD, you can start queuing it up. The thing about Lane was he was a walking contradiction. He seemed very cocky and like sure of himself, but he was really shy. We mentioned in the studio he would kind of back away from people. During the recording of Facelift, he was described as being very almost childlike. Jordan's studio manager, Ronnie Champagne said that when they would record, they would specifically select the biggest space they could and Lane would have nobody in the room. It would just be him. In fact, what he would do is he'd go to the center of the room by himself. He'd set up a stool, a bottle of water. He'd have his sunglasses on and he'd bring in a single ashtray so he could smoke. And then he would tell Champagne, he'd be like, please turn the lights down so you can barely see me. So it was completely dark and he did this champagne went with it and he said lane nailed almost every vocal track in one take and that's why i want to do again just through the first chorus if you would ld cue up the lane staley isolated vocals from man in the box and- B gives me chills i don't know about you guys but just the power oh
2: i will say like i will say vocally like you can hear that he's a great vocalist but they were definitely throwing echo and reverb on him Mm -hmm. and i would have liked to have heard it clean like because i know he's got the power behind his voice
4: they had harmonies that were so atypical of heavy metal bands and and the the blending of voices adds so much and it's so the way they did it is it gives it an like an eerie almost aura yeah, it's yeah. It's-
0: so how about a few fun facts shall we fun facts fun facts shall we the original riff for that song was actually written by as we mentioned in the last episode ron holt which was in lane's previous band they decided to use it and they actually slowed it down so the original riff was much faster they couldn't decide on how to improve the hook so dave jordan was actually driving around in his car and what comes on the radio Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. So he thought, huh, let's get a talk box. And that's where he had Jerry get the talk box and create that iconic riff that you're in Man in the Box. Uh, Lane was actually on his way to becoming more of a lyricist with Alice in Chains. Jerry did a lot of the writing and a lot of the lyrics, but he actually wrote all the lyrics for Man in the Box. And when asked about how he came up with it, he said that he thought about it when he went to dinner with several record executives. And they were talking about Veal, and how the calves were raised in these small boxes. So Lane said, I went home and wrote about the government's censorship and eating meat as if seen through the eyes of a doomed calf. So that's his explanation behind Man in the Box.
2: Well, that's creepy.
0: Yep. Well, he went on to say, you know, it's loosely based on censorship. It's my theory only. Plus, I was really stoned when I wrote it. So take that for what it's worth. The album cover, because uh, TJ, you remember the album cover of Facelift, right? Yes. It's kind of a distorted face and like purples and blues. That was actually taken by a famous Rolling Stone and New York Times photographer named Rocky Schneck. Now, Jerry Cantrell told the story that the original concept of the album was the band Being Born. So what they did is they put plastic over the top of a pool. Each band member swam down under the plastic, came up through it, and breathed in. So all the plastic like tightened to their face, and it made them look really distorted. And they actually shot all four band members. Would anyone like to guess which band member actually appears on the cover of Facelift? Yeah. LA <laughs> nothing.
2: You're asking me Lane? It is not me, Lane. You're asking me to name somebody in Alice in Chains other than the person <laughs> that we're talking about. <laughs> it
0: is.
5: It's <laughs> amazing. TJ, it, uh, it is
0: not Lane. It is not Lane. It is actually Mike Starr. That's his face you see on the cover of Facelift. Uh, they did do four photos. The original idea was to be like a composite, but they went with Mike Starr's picture and the picture of all four actually appeared on the Music Bank box set released in 1999. In fact, the album was completely untitled until they did that photo shoot. It wasn't until they got those pictures back and looked at it that they decided to go with the name Facelift. So that's how the Facelift album came to be. The original budget was almost $250,000, which in today's money, those you have your calculators, is about 566000 give or take. The album was finally released on August 21st, 1990. Facelift would actually get as high as number 42 on the Billboard charts, which means it was the first grunge album to break the top 50. It would also be the first grunge album to go certified gold. And here's another fun fact. Fun fact. Thank you. When Facelift hit gold status, Jerry actually sent copies to his old choir director, Joanne Becker, and all of the teachers that he had in high school who inspired him to do music. Another fun fact. Another fun fact. Fun fact. Facelift would go on to be a double platinum album, which is to this day, one of the highest selling grunge albums of all time. *Men in the Box would actually get a Grammy nomination, but they would ultimately lose to Van Halen. So in 1991 so if you haven't checked our series on Van Halen little shameless plug there Ozzy Osbourne said that facelift was in his top 10 list of favorite metal albums of all time and so we're gonna do one more song from facelift and this time TJ it will be dealer's choice from you sir Uh, we'd like you to pick a track from facelift I've ruled a few out because we've played them before but the rest are fair game so we've heard man in the box we've heard sea of sorrow everything else fair game
5: Mm.
2: so you still got we die young bleed the freak i can't remember love hate love it ain't like that sunshine put you down confusion i know something probably you and know what uh, we, you thing. know what
4: let's go we die young
2: oh good young. choice okay. let's hear we die young we die young that's the first track on this listing so here we go <laughs>
5: Then you got hit and you should have no better. Best we run.
2: We that just ends suddenly, kinda like that last one. <laughs> yep. It just stops. <clears throat> oh, what a good song, though. And we're done playing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, another banger. Absolutely. Now, in the words of Jerry Cantrell, we had some interesting and hard times during the Facelift album, but along with success came some much darker things.
4: Hey, Will, slow your roll, dog. We've
0: got to take a break for a commercial. And we're back. Back we are, talking about Lane Staley. Obviously, Alice in Chains has a dark tone to it, but the Facelift album had a series of very dark sort of undercurrents, events that were happening to and around the band members at this time. Uh, one of them was a note in the the liner notes, if you remember on CDs they had liner notes, it says, in memory of Mike Buckner. Buckner was actually a music bank employee who in 1988 sadly took his own life. He had actually left the music bank, believedly under the influence, had a fight with his girlfriend, and he was out in a park and allegedly they heard a gunshot and he had just take it his own life uh, he and lane were very close and at the time they had no money to cover mike's burial costs so actually they teamed up allison Chains teamed up with another band called hit and run they did sort of like a benefit concert and they were actually able to raise money for mike's burial and they did a tribute to him in facelift saying in memory of mike buckner so for those of you who see that can know who mike is and that he was a beloved member of the allison Chains community that was not the only loss that surrounded the Making of the Facelift album, the other would be Andrew Wood, the famed frontman of Mother Love Bone. Wood was obviously known for being in Seattle. He grew up in Mississippi. He was really influenced by glam rock. And it's interesting we mentioned Mark Bolin earlier because one of his biggest influences was T-Rex, Mark Bolin. He loved Kiss, he loved the doors, and LD Love This Queen was one of his biggest influences.
2: I, I mean honestly, I don't trust anyone that doesn't say that Queen is an influence. <laughs> I just don't, I can't. I can't. It's kind of like saying as an actor, you don't like Nicolas Cage. I just I can't trust you. <laughs> we don't, we don't have we're not the
0: same font. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, By the mere age of 14, Andrew Wood has actually formed his first band, which was called Malfunction, with his brother. Unfortunately, around the same time, he also allegedly started using substances. It started with marijuana um, and kind of accelerated into other things. The best thing Wood was known for was being the front man for Mother Love Bone. In 1988, he got together with Jeff Ament and Bruce Fairweather, formerly of the band Green River, and Stone Gossard, who we remember was uh, working at a bakery and actually would eventually go on to be in Pearl Jam, and drummer Greg Gilmore, and they formed Mother Love Bone. Around 1985, it is alleged that Wood actually started dabbling in heroin, uh, and this led to huge health problems. They said he was actually quite jaundiced. Uh, His liver was starting to fail. He may have had hepatitis. He actually checked himself into rehab in 1989, and he would actually remain sober until his final performance. Now, at this point, all these Seattle bands, as you can tell, are mixing together. You've got Mother Love Bone, you've got Green River, you've got Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and Curtis Deans and Silver all seem to be tying them together. In fact, Andrew Wood was roommates with Chris Cornell at the time of his passing. Uh, And Lane knew Wood from different shows and they spent some time together. On March 9th of 1989, Mother Love Bone played their final show at the Centriol Test. I think it's Centriol. Centriol? Please correct me if I'm wrong on that one. The very next day, Wood started acting strangely. He backed out of several commitments he had. He was supposed to get get together with Jeff Ahmed. Kelly Curtis was actually assigned to sort of be his chaperone because he was trying to get clean. He started breaking appointments there. Several days later he actually called up Mike Starr of Alice in Chains and said he needed a lift home. So Mike says, sure, he goes and picks him up. They end up going past Wood's home and Andrew Wood is like, now keep going, keep going. He's like, okay, okay. And finally they get to a point several blocks past where he says, this is fine. Wood gets out of the car and according to Starr's account, he approaches an unknown person a little further ways down. And allegedly that was the last time anybody saw him. So alive, I should say. Mike Starr was apparently the last person to see andrew wood alive on march 16th wood's girlfriend Xana ray lafuente actually returned home from work to find andrew wood unconscious on the floor of his home there was a needle near his body and puncture marks on his arm so immediately Xana calls the police wood is rushed to harborview memorial uh, harborview medical center and he was completely comatose the, immediately, the immediate members of the family rushed to his side, along with members of Mother Lovebone and Alice in Chains. Wood would be in a coma for several days when it became apparent that he would probably never wake up. It wasn't until Monday, March 19th, that Wood's family made the impossible decision to take their son off life support. However, they said they would not do it until Chris Cornell had time to come and see him, so they waited. And Chris was actually coming back from a concert. He came all the way back from the show on Monday, March 19th and was there for Wood's final moments. So it's pretty sad. Mother Love Bone was one of those bands, I think TJ, that you may know, that they were almost there. They were kind of one of the ones that were almost there. They never quite got it, but they were almost there. Uh, in fact, Jacob and Murray of the Experience Music Project in Seattle would call Andrew Wood the Freddie Mercury of Seattle. Lane was really impacted. By Wood's death at the funeral Chris Cornell said that he kept seeing Lane and saying he had a sudden urge Jeez. just to grab him and hug him and tell him everything was going to be okay Lane was clearly impacted and this was largely believed was for two reasons one is that they connected on an artistic level but also Lane had an understanding of what it meant to fight that addiction already Lane was going down that dark path and even at the time those close to Lane said that the way he talked about it was almost like he knew it was inevitable that it was just kind of a a path he was going to go down. Um, And Lane would actually seek treatment several times. Unfortunately, it would never be successful. By the time he passes, Lane's mother, Nancy, would actually say that Lane would be checked into rehab a total of 13 times in his life, which is just unfathomable. Absolutely unfathomable. The recording of the Facelift album was also wrought with, uh, again, other issues. There was lots of partying going on. Uh, They were in Los Angeles, and they were staying at the infamous Oakwoods complex, which LD and I have mentioned before, and I think TJ's came up in your episode on Rick James, he too stayed at the Oakwoods, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's correct. Yes, it's a a famous, uh, it used to be sort of a a flop house for entertainers coming and going through LA, located right near Burbank, a convenient location for anyone coming into LA. Uh, In fact, one night, one of the producers of the album actually allegedly went into a bathroom at a local strip club and they said Lane was in there. He was almost lighting himself on fire, like there was a fire and it was clearly out of control. So why was Lane in there with fire? One can suppose there are reasons. Um, Lane's girlfriend Demery, we mentioned Demery Perot in the last episode, was present for most of the recording. She was in the studio and hanging out with the band. And at that point, Mike Starr actually became sort of the lightning rod for all the band's problems. They said Mike was really the one to blame. He was partying, he was out, you know, he was womanizing. Uh, he was suspected of using drugs and influencing Lane and Demery would actually believe that Star was enabling Lane at this time. Uh, which I point out because first of all, these are all accounts, by the way, folks. It is alleged that this happened. None of us were actually there. Uh, a lot of the articles you find about Demery Perot sort of paint her as this Lady Macbeth character that leads to Lane's downfall. Not the case in what I've I've uncovered here. You know, she was largely supportive of Lane. She saw the impact of addiction. Unfortunately, she too would get involved in substances. Um, Was Mike Starr to blame? I don't know. These are just accounts from the individuals who were there. And like I said, putting together Lane's story is very much a puzzle. There's pieces from all these different accounts and you kind of have to meld them together. So this is what some of the accounts have said. Lane did get a surprise visitor during the recording of this album too. And that was his father, Phil. As we know, Phil left the family when Lane was very young and some thought this impacted Lane. Lane refuted the idea, but news say Phil turns up right when his son is becoming successful. Is this suspicious? Eh, We don't really know. Uh, What we know is that Lane was very happy to see his father. They spent time together. But as we mentioned before, Phil was an addict. And one of the things he brought with him when spending time with his son were drugs, particularly heroin. So, again, it alleged that when Phil was spending time with Lane, that he was dabbling in heroin, which he may have been doing before. So, again, these are accounts. Uh, some people blame Phil. Some people blame Demery. Some people blame Mike Starr. What we do know is that the environment the Music Bank was an environment where these substances were around and available. So, really, at the end of the day, we don't know. It's It's really... It's, it's an open interpretation, I think. The only thing we do know is that by this point, Phil, Demery, and Lane had all at least experimented with heroin. That's the one thing we do know. Alice and Chains had finally arrived as a band. When they finished recording, Lane actually returned back to Seattle with Demery to visit his family, at the Elmers, where he had spent his time growing up, and they celebrated Christmas together. Before Facelift was recorded, a good friend of the band named Thad Bird, who actually directed the Father Rock video that we mentioned in episode two, I believe, had said that there was a day, uh, Jerry's birthday, and they were going to get Jerry something for his birthday, and Lane was so broke he had to borrow money from Thad to get Jerry a pack of cigarettes for his birthday. That's how broke this guy was. It was totally different now. Now they had a contract. Lane comes It's the in, perfect gift. Yeah, right. <laughs> it keeps on giving, right? It's the perfect gift. Yeah, but he was so broke, he had to borrow it's the money right, the It's exactly you know? the right size. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, needless to say, this is very different. Lane returns home. He's got presents for everybody. His sister, Jamie, said that uh, he came to where she and her mother were living. They had brought all these presents, and it was the first time that Lane had money to buy presents.
2: Don't don't crush yeah. my heart like that.
0: Well, he had been broke. I mean, he had been no
2: yeah.
0: but uh now that he's got a record deal again, he comes home, he brings presents for everybody, he and Demory are there. I'm gonna end the episode on that little happy Christmas tableau for now. Um so dear listeners, that is where we will leave off. Allison Chains is certainly off and running. The next episode we will cover three primary things. I'm gonna call them singles, sap, and dirt, which of course is the singles movie, the EP album sap. And what many consider the seminal work of Alice in Chains, the Dirt album, that would be in 1992, folks, which would be one year after the formation of the Manfreds, formed by Paul Jones, Mike Hug, and the incomparable Tom McGinnis, who was an original member of Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Incorrect. Just Manfred Mann. <laughs>
5: It just keeps oh, going. Oh, so good. <laughs> and we'll,
0: we'll play the clip. Roll the clip. Roll the clip. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: I am Tom McGinnis, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied.
2: Oh, that is just doesn't get any better than that.
0: It's, it's, brilliant. it's brilliant. That
4: makes me so happy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yes, he, he was a a member member of the Manfreds, as you had said, LD. Uh, not Manfred Man's Earth Band. I just tried to tie in the reference. It's there. it's still um, been fun. Which is uh, the second retraction. I uh, first of two retractions I have to make is uh, TJ. You pointed out uh, one of the members of Guns N' Roses is still alive. I think I mistakenly quoted him as past earlier. Steven
4: Adler is still with. Me. Yes. He is still with
0: us. Okay, I know he has had somebody...
4: some. He has had some serious health problems, but he is still with us.
0: Okay, got it. I had mistakenly thought he had passed. So retraction there, correction there. Button that up. So I thought the best way to end the episode would be with a song to come, as I've often done in this series. But before we do that, let's do a little business and close
2: out. All right. So if you uh, like what we're doing, uh, don't donate now because uh, we're gonna get together, the, the three of us and actually restructure our Patreon so that there are like really good tiers. There's like secret stuff happening since we're going to be moving so much closer. It's going to be easier for us to do like produce our content and stuff like that. So, uh, if, if you, you know, feeling fancy or whatever, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. But I mean, like don't right now, like you can do it now if you want or later, it doesn't matter We're we're going to do more stuff. So anyway, uh twitter is uh, a deserted wasteland but you can check us out at rock and roll lt we discovered last time uh we hadn't posted since april because i lost the login information <laughs> and don't know which Oopsie. email it goes to this <laughs> is i'm failing um we do have our instagram at rock and roll heaven lt uh, which we also upload all of our fun facts that we do on uh, TikTok, but you can go to, to Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook, we actually post on that a lot and we're fun. So come see us at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. And you can check out our TikTok at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. You can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. Um, I do know that Mistress Carrie just had an awesome interview. So you might want to head over to her podcast and check that out. So that is all of our socials. We're failing at like three of them, but it's fine. We have Facebook and TikTok and that's, and you can email us and stuff. So anyway, yeah, it's like my birthday, fake birthday day, celebration day. So, you know, I'm I've already mentally checked out. So uh, I love you guys. Uh, TJ, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? Fire, buddy. I said (laughs) fire, buddy. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for checking this episode of Lane's Daily out. Uh, The next episode is actually going to be our September Slap Nuts, I think. Is it still September once we do that? Yes, it will be. It will be, yeah. So we'll be doing our our September Slap Nuts. Uh, There will definitely be a theme that you will see running through. Um, It'll be a lot of fun. So check that out. We'll be back in two weeks with Lane Staley part five. Uh, So I'm going to close out by saying thank you guys all for checking out this episode. We'll see you in a couple days. Uh, And sorry that this episode came out late. But again, I am celebrating my birthday because we will be moving across the country on my actual birthday. All right. So uh, I will pass this back over
0: to Mr. Will the Thrill to close up the episode. All right. So we will close out with a song from SAP. This was the EP released in 1992. The song I selected was popular on this album, made even more popular by a film that I know and love, and that is Clerks, which came out in 1994. But the original track was from the EP Sap in 1992. So as we bid you farewell today, let's close out with an Alice Chains classic. Here is Got Me Wrong. <laughs>